Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist for Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host this evening for the Gist of Freedom. I'm stationed here in Kansas City, Missouri. I'm a professional genealogist, and I am the president of the Midwest Afro-American Genealogical Interest Coalition here in Kansas City. We have a very good show for you tonight, and the subject of that show is Ida B. Wells, Warrior for Justice. And we want to welcome our guest, Professor Safiya Brandelli, who resides in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, Safiya was monitored or mentored by Dr. Betty Shabazz, and she recently retired after a 34-year career at the Megar Evers College of the City University of New York, where she was an instructor, she was a women's advocate, she was the director of the Center for Women's Development, and she also received something called the Chisholm Award. Are you there, Sophia? I am, brother, yes. Thank you. Oh, welcome. Thank you. Uh, tell us a little bit about this Chisholm Award. What's that about? The Chisholm Award was given by the borough president, and it was given to an educator whose life and whose work exemplified the principles of Shirley Chisholm, who was, in fact, an educator as well. So it was an honor to be given an award in her name for my work at City University of New York on behalf of women and uh, education. And tell us who Shirley Chisholm was. Some of our younger viewers, our listeners may not know. She was an active uh, person on the political scene in Brooklyn, New York. She actually uh, served in the uh, state state legislature in New York, but she was a candidate for president of the United States, which she was the first black candidate for president of the United States, Shirley Chisholm, congresswoman, very uh, fiery, fierce. Actually, Ida B. Wells is in her tradition. Oh, great. And I should uh, mention that I had the honor of being on a guard detail when I was in the police department here in Kansas City, Missouri, when Ms. Chisholm was on her presidential tour. Oh, cool. And uh, still consider that a great honor. Yes, indeed. Yes, Ida B. Wells. How did you get interested in Ida B. Wells? Well, um, uh, during my years at Medgar, we had uh, we didn't have a women's studies department, but in the humanities department, we had interdisciplinary courses, and we always had courses on women. And so during, um, during the course of the years, we would include Ida B. Wells when we discussed black women in history and uh, just became very uh, interested in her life as a model. Um, she's not one that is often held up because of her role in history, but um, the more I studied her, the more I saw that she was, in fact, a role model because of her multidimensionality. And too often we are pigeonholed as one thing, and she, um, though history may have her pigeonholed, she was, in fact, very complex and um, a very uh, led a very full life. Okay, well, we're certainly going to hold up here, hold her up here tonight, yes. uh, this evening. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't you start out? Where are you going to start with her lynching work, anti-lynching, or no? I don't want to start with the lynching. I want to talk about some of the themes in her life, and critical resistance is a major theme, and so I want to talk about. Uh, the first instance of critical resistance, let's say, came when she was 14 or 15 and her parents had been killed in the uh, yellow fever epidemic in Holly Springs, Mississippi. She was away visiting her grandmother 
when she got the news and she came back, uh, the adults, the Masons, her father was a Mason, had gathered to have a meeting and decided to send the children to different places. You know, we didn't they didn't call them foster home or whatever. So they had decided where the two two boys would go, the two girls would go, and the disabled person would go. And Ida B. Wells, she just sat in the room listening, and then they said, okay, and you can be on your own since you're 14 or 15. And she said, no, I'm keeping these children. They aren't going anyplace. So that was a kind of unheard of for a teenager to oppose the Masons who thought they were doing the best thing for the family. And she said, no, my mm-hmm. parents would want us to stay together. And they said, well, how can you, you know, you're a teenager, how can you uh, take care of these children? And she said, well, I'll lengthen my skirts and from a, being a girl to being a lady, and I can teach because I have some schooling. And our father left us some money, and so with help from the others, I'll be all right. And they said, okay. And so she became head of the household as a teenager because of her critical resistance to the idea of the children being separated. And that was just uh, a first early example of how she would look at a situation and say, no, that's not right. There's another way to do that. And that uh, was one example, as I said, of her critical resistance. And then, of course, the next time on the railroad when uh, she was in the ladies' car and uh, they wanted her to move, and she, again, critically resisted, like, no, I don't want to move. I belong in the lady's car. And um, so when they tried to move her, of course, she bit the hand of the conductor, and then he went and got others. Now, she was about 4 feet 11, maybe 95 pounds, and um, they dragged her off. So she didn't forget that, and she said, well, this is not right, and so she started the lawsuit. You know, she sued the railroad. So, again, critically resisting, being in opposition to injustice, is how she lived her life. And wherever injustice reared its head, Ida B. Wells was there to say, no, this is wrong. Of course, her major work was with the, the, in the lynching, but there were all these other examples of how she stood up. Okay, she was 14 um, when her parents uh, died in the yellow fever. How old was she um, at the railroad incident? 21. 21. She was 21. About 21, okay. yes, and then just a small, a small person, you know. And if you think back to that time, how extraordinary it was for a young woman to just be forceful like that. It's really, uh, it was an extraordinary position for her to take. So she was uh, hauled off to jail. Was there? Uh, no, she was just court thrown, proceeding? Off, thrown off the train. Just thrown and, off the train. Uh, mm-hmm. And she filed a lawsuit against the uh, Ohio Railroad. Um, she actually won $500, and so then the railroad appealed, and the higher Tennessee higher court uh, re- reversed it, so she did not win. But that started her career as a journalist because she wrote about it for her church newsletter, and so mm-hmm. she began to write in the church newsletter about that and other injustice, and different newspapers would hear about it and say, we want to run this article in our church newspaper, or we want to run this article in, in our newspaper, and that's how her career as a journalist began. And so she says that she was glad that she was not put as a as a lady journalist writing about recipe, what we call recipes and food and fashion. She got writing <laughs> and... social justice right away. And it was because she wrote about that experience and uh, many other experiences. Mm-hmm. What was her next critical resistance example? The next critical resistance came as... Um, when the, her three friends were lynched, you know, Thomas Moss and the three her three businessmen friends. And she says that, you know, even she admits that up to that time when hearing about lynchings, she thought, well, maybe, you know, it's just that, you know, Negro men just had a thing for some white women, even though it was by Barry. But when her three friends were lynched, that was a, a wake-up. And she said, no, we have to, I have to really look at what we have been accepting as just this is the way it's been, and so the lynching could go on. So she um, began to write about uh, the lynch law, but more than write, she began to do the research to see what the reasons were, what they, who was lynched, and, and so forth. Um, the other thing is when she wrote the editorial after her friends were lynched, the, she was writing, mm-hmm. uh, she wasn't writing under her name, and the uh, people in the town thought a man had written it. They just couldn't conceive that a woman had written this fierce editorial saying that the South had better watch out because if, if this just seems like black, white women are going with black men, they better take a look. 
So when the white press read that, she was in New York uh, with T. Thomas Fortune doing a talk. Uh, they burned down the, uh, the free press, uh, her, her office, and the, the editor had to run out of town, and they had gathered to really, really, you know, lynch them, lynch the people who dare to impugn the honor of white women, as they called it. But it was what paper was she... What paper was she writing for? She was writing for the free. Um, it was called the free print, the Free Age, Memphis. The Free, free Age. No, Memphis Free Speech newspaper. Okay, Memphis, Tennessee. Okay. Yeah, in Tennessee, right? Because that was, um, yeah, Memphis, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. But they burned the the people burned that down, burned the offices down, and everybody had to leave. And I think it was like she said, thirty some years before she went back to Tennessee, because there was a price on her head for writing that. So she stayed in New York. Um, she joined the the New York Age, I think that's the name of the New York Age newspaper, and began to do the writing. And did she write under her own name for yeah, the New, yeah, after uh, she, New York she Age? She wrote under Iola, I-O-L-A, when she was in uh-huh. uh, Memphis with the church. Uh, again, because a female journalist was uh, kind of like unheard of. But she traveled the country, um, you know, and at that time, you know, we don't have that many black newspapers today, but at that time, right, right, post-emancipation during the Reconstruction, there were hundreds of black newspapers. I mean, just when when we were doing great things as a race, you know, with our lawyers and our boot persons to do the, the boots and the, and the horses and whatever, professionals and store owners and seamstresses and journalists and doctors and lawyers, all of that, before the white backlash came in. But she traveled the country as a young woman raising money for the newspapers, and whenever she spoke, people would just, you know, give coins to say, this is great work. So she was called the uh, the princess what, the princess of the press and was touted and feted as a, almost like a celebrity wherever she went around the country because people so um, appreciated her work. And even for those of our people who could not read, she had printed it um, on pink paper, and so the people, our people who could not read would just tell the others, I want the pink paper, you know, because uh, it was just how much she was supported in doing her writing and in doing her talk. What was her relationship to other black leaders of her time? Um, was well, it she, T. Washington? And... Yeah, she uh, she really bumped heads with a lot of them. Over just her way, she had an uncompromising uh, way of thinking about things is that, you know, black leaders aren't doing enough and why aren't you and so forth. But I wanted to just share, in New York in 1892, she she gave a talk on the lynching and she was there to raise money for her, for the newspaper and, and to also for legal fees for people, for families and so forth. And, um, her talk, her, her visit was paid for by black women in Brooklyn and in New York, and she spoke in this hall, and the remarks were published in the pamphlet called Southern Horrors, Lynch Law in its All Its Phases. But Frederick Douglass wrote um, in praise of it, and if I may just read from his letter to her. Yes. Okay. Frederick Douglass writes, Dear Miss Wells, let me give you thanks for your faithful paper on the lynch abomination now generally practiced against colored people in the South. There has been no word equal to it in convincing power. I have spoken, but my word is feeble in comparison to yours. You give us what you know and testify from actual knowledge. You have dealt with facts. You have dealt with the facts with cool, painstaking fidelity and left those naked and uncontradicted facts to speak for themselves. Brave woman, you have done your people and mine a service which can never be weighed nor measured. If American conscience were only half alive, if the American church and clergy were only half Christianized, if American moral sensibility were not hardened by persistent infliction of outrage and crime against colored people, a scream of horror, shame, and indignation would rise to heaven wherever your pamphlet shall be read. So this was very truly and gratefully yours, Frederick Douglass, October 25th, 1892. And they became became good friends. Yeah, also when um, his second wife was white and a lot um, later 
the black club women were not that um, nice to her, and Ida B. Wells was, and Fred, and um, Frederick Douglass appreciated that uh, Ida B. Wells just welcomed his second wife and didn't, you know, didn't mind or didn't shun her because she was a white person. Mm-hmm. Now, with Booker, she was different. She was just that. She just felt this, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstrap was not um, useful information, particularly when we talked about who was lynched. Businessmen were lynched, so it wasn't that if you were, you know, if you do all the right things, you'll be okay. It wasn't as simple as that. I wrote down someplace I was trying to find out. And people well, said that he compromised, you know, that he was compromised. Yeah. So um, so he, the major difference with Booker T is that Ida Wells saw lynching as a white tool to prevent black advancement. And Booker T said that black success would bring white acceptance. So that that's a totally different thing, that black success would bring white acceptance, Booker T felt. And Barnett Barrett, uh, Barnett said no because black success, her three friends owned People's Grocery Store in Memphis, and it was a great success, but they were lynched because the, another white person owned the grocery store, and, of course, the black people started to patronize the People's Grocery, and uh, so it was an economic thing, uh, the hatred and the resentment that caused the white store owner to fabricate charges and just resulted in uh, these three men being lynched. So she said it's not just enough to be a successful black person. So she saw that Booker T was willing to be uh, willing to compromise, and uh, the title of one of their books is "To Keep the Waters Troubled." Her book, uh, the biography by Linda O. McMurray, and so that Booker T's uh, aim was to calm the troubled waters by saying, "You know, we're good," and so forth. And her aim was to disturb the trouble, to keep the waters troubled, because uh, there was always injustice bubbling up somewhere, and it needed to be addressed. I see. I'd like to remind our listeners that they are listening to the Gist of Freedom on www.blackhistoryblog.com. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host, and our guest is Safiya. Uh, here on the Gist of Freedom, and our subject is Ida B. Wells, Warrior for Justice. And if you should have a comment or a question, you can reach us at 347 324 5552. Uh, Professor, you mentioned a title of a book. Are there any other books that uh, our listeners should be on the lookout for? Well, her autobiography, her granddaughter found her notes and wrote the autobiography, so that's written in the first person. Ida B. Wells' Crusade for Justice, the autobiography of Ida B. Wells, edited by Alfreda M. Duster, which is a granddaughter. And then my favorite one is To Keep the Waters Troubled, The Life of Ida B. Wells by Linda O. McMurray. And um, the other one I love is To Tell the Truth Freely, The Life of Ida B. Wells by Mia Bay. Does she have a relationship with other women in the movement during her time, uh, Sojourner Truth and... She liked, yeah, the two of them liked each other. I'm not quite sure of how much they really worked together, but she was more with the contemporary club movement, uh, Mary Church Terrell in particular, and the club women. And so she did a lot of uh, community organizing. Uh, she had, uh, she founded the Ida B. Wells Club, uh, the Illinois Colored Women's Federation. Uh, of course, she established the Negro Fellowship League. So she... Um, when the women, with, with the women's organizations, even though she believed in education, uh, she felt that she herself uh, didn't see herself being a teacher to uplift the race the way many of the other women did. She said, mm -hmm. Frank, "She said, frankly, I hate teaching." So she was not, you know, really, really good teacher. Uh, she didn't like that. And then for the women's organizations, because she felt the lynching so strongly, she felt they really needed to be taking a position around that that it was uh, the, the issue of the day, and that whatever the women's club was doing, that lynching should be a major part of their work. So they were made, uh, that's one thing that um, that I don't see happening today. I say, where are black women in the women's federations today? 
I mean, doing great social justice work, you know. That seems mm-hmm, to, uh, mm-hmm. I don't, that doesn't seem to be happening that much. But at that time, it was uh, a lot, a lot of uh, women's organizations, and they were very, very powerful. Of course, Miss Mary McLeod Bethune, very, very extremely powerful. But Ida B. Wells, it's just some people don't have that kind of team temperament, and to her detriment, she did not, because later when she tried to run for Congress in her district, as much work as she'd done, she couldn't what She didn't get enough votes because she had just turned off people by her sometimes abrasive attitude, which was uh, unfortunate, but as you say, she did it the way she felt it should be done. What was her relationship with Paul Robinson? Uh, I'm not sure. Paul Robinson, let's see. How old would that? I'm not sure about was that. He, I was he a contemporary that. of hers? No. No, Robinson in, um, no. was involved with the March on Washington with Albert Einstein. She... That was probably not her generation. Yes, she was earlier. She was earlier, yeah. But it was interesting with with Marcus Garvey. um, She and Marcus Garvey had a good relationship. Um, She invited Marcus Garvey to Chicago to speak at her organization and the Negro Fellowship League, and um, he invited her to New York to speak at the UNIA. And, um, in fact, appointed her as the UNI delegate to the World Peace Conference in Versailles, and um, in which she went, and so she said that she liked Garvey. She she uh, pre- uh, um, appreciated his ability to quote solidify the masses of our people and endow them with racial consciousness and racial unity. End of quote. And then he, in turn, appreciated her work for the same reason that she talked about um, race first, you know. And so Garvey yeah. appreciated that, and also. When um, Garvey filed a, a libel suit against the Chicago Defender for what they what he said they defamed him, um, Ida Wells' husband Ferdinand Barnett, a lawyer, defended Garvey in that suit. She says that she's sorry that Garvey didn't take her advice to not do the uh, selling the the shares for the Black Star. She says she mm-hmm. felt it wasn't well thought out, and she didn't think it would be successful. And as history would show, she perhaps was correct in that that was, uh, we don't know if that was the reason, but one of the reasons for the uh, him having to be deported. But the, they were two people who uh, appreciated each other's position around racial consciousness and racial unity. Speaking of racial consciousness, uh, could you tell our listeners a little bit about your relationship with Dr. Betty Shabazz? Oh, yeah. And will you be going to uh, see the movie Coretta and Betty? Oh, I'm absolutely going to see that. Um, okay. Betty she worked at St. at um, Medgar Evers College for, uh, until she died. And when I went to Medgar Evers, I spent my entire professional career at Medgar Evers. We met then and just became, you know, became friends. And throughout the years, um, you know, we... We confided in each other and supported each other. And uh, at the women's center, she would support the women's students. I mean, she just did so much work quietly, particularly the, the young single mothers who would be struggling. And she would talk about what it was like to be a young single mother and give them support. And um, she really, really supported the women's center at the college, supported the college, and supported me personally, you know, in my, my life. Uh, she just was an extraordinary and she was um, involved in all that work and a single parent to six daughters mm-hmm. after Malcolm's assassination. Mm-hmm. And can, um, I can imagine. Just It was just, and not immediately after the fear, because there was so much hatred going around, just the fear, trying to keep them safe, trying to keep herself exactly. safe and keep them safe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, quite a feat in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, getting back to Ida B. Wells, um, uh, what about her suffrage work? Uh, yes, was this she, uh, Negro she, Fellowship League that you mentioned, was that part of her suffrage work? or? No, no, her suffrage work, she actually started uh, an organization in Chicago called the Alpha Alpha Suffrage League for Black Women. And she um, felt that, you know, black women, of course, really needed to um, participate in the suffrage movement in order to uh, have more power, for women to have more power in general. And when they had the big march in Washington, and um, she wanted to march with the Illinois delegation, 
and mm-hmm. the Illinois delegation said, uh, no, if you march with us, the southern delegation, you know, will be upset, so why don't you march with the Negro delegation? So Ida B. Wells was furious that, you know, I'm not going to march with the Illinois delegation, with the Negro delegation. I'm in a state of, of Illinois. I want to march with the Illinois people. So they said no, and so she said, well, I'm not going to march. And then uh, two white women said, well, you know what, we'll march with the uh, with the um, black people so that it would be integrated. And Ida B. Wells said no, so she stepped away from it. And then the march is proceeding down the street, and then out she comes to march where she wants to march. You know, it's just that's just how she was. She marched where she wanted to march after the march started, the suffragettes march started. So then she, uh, back in Chicago, started the Alpha Suffrage Movement. In fact, I think a young sister has written a book about that, just about that work, Ida B. Wells, the, Af- the Alpha Suffrage Movement, as, again, as one of the dimensions of her work. I also want to say in terms okay. of her international work, after she yes. uh, was speaking so much here, uh, the people, the London uh, abolitionist group, anti-lynching movement, invited her there. She spoke um, many places, were very well received in London, enthusiastic groups in London, uh, in England, and in Scotland. And in um, she wrote from one of her journals, she wrote, uh, quote, I am in Great Britain today because I believe that the silent indifference with which she has received the charge that human beings are burned alive in Christian Anglo-Saxon communities is born of ignorance of the true situation and that if she really knew, she would make the protest loud and long. So she felt that people in Great Britain didn't know, so her job was to make it known so that there would be a protest. And she was somewhat successful because then the people in Great Britain began to talk about the barbaric custom in the United States of America. So, of course, that didn't bode well for the uh, the, the, the newspaper people back in the, in the States. They continued to um, vilify her because of uh, her. And then to ask the people in Britain, they don't know anything about it. How dare they? How dare they? Now, I want to uh, really compliment you, uh, Professor, and uh, give this, this uh, detailed presentation on Ida. You're making us feel like uh, we could very well know her personally. Um, tell us about this quote about her packing a pistol, bought a pistol. Do you know? Do you have that yes, available? Yes, I, I love that quote. I use it in my performance. This was after <laughs> her three friends. And... Um, I think it was on the it was on the page, right? It was on the web page. It was on the. Um, well, for those I think uh, Leslie had put are, it up there. I think Leslie had put it on. The for page. those that aren't uh, on that web page or Facebook, uh, why don't you read it for us? I can't put my hands on it. Why don't you read it? Okay. Go ahead. And I quote. All right. I bought a pistol the first thing after Tom Moss was lynched because I expected some cowardly retaliation from the lynchers. Mm-hmm. I felt that one had better die fighting against injustice than to die like a dog or a rat in a trap. Mm-hmm. I felt if I could take one lyncher with me, this would even up the score just a little bit. End of quote. Ida B. Wells. Yes, five yes. foot four, you said? Yeah, five, um, uh, four <laughs> eleven. Four eleven? <laughs> yes. It took nothing off nobody. That's right. When they tried to take her off the train, uh, she bit him, you know. Bit yeah, him. quite a quite a battler. Quite a fighter, yeah. Um, so in her, um, or we, um, you had something uh, you wanted to share with us uh, in reference to a poem. Oh, the uh, the performance. Um, are we about ready for that? Yes. Do we have the music? I think we do. Oh, that's Here we it. go. Yes. There you yes. go. So we're ready whenever you are. I want to hear more of the song. Okay. Old times they are not forgotten. Look away. Look away, look away, Dixie. 
So can we come back to maybe later? So um, as soon as we get the uh, the engineer, okay. uh, you want to mute that, right? Uh, well, it can play. I just love it. Okay. 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 So it's I muted. People know that, but I just want to do the lyrics like. Uh, southern trees bear a strange fruit, blood on the leaves and blood at the root. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. Pastoral scene of the gallant south, their bulging eyes and the twisted mouth. Scent of magnolia sweet and fresh, then the sudden smell of burning flesh. Here is a fruit for the crows to pluck, for the rain to gather, for the wind to suck. For the sun to rot, for the trees to drop, here is a strange and bitter, so bitter crop, strange fruit hanging. It's a beautiful, beautiful, um, beautiful, terrible. So um, when I do the performance, you know, I become the tree, you know, the tree where the bodies are hanging from. So here I am, I'm speaking as the tree. No one asked me, no one asked me. I am the tree. I am a living thing. I bear fruit. I grow. My roots are deep. Here they come. Another body. Two bodies. They drag them. Both are alive. Barely. Wait. Leave. Don't hang them from my limbs. Don't hang them on me like some piece of dead fruit. Don't. Don't. Oh, the weight. The blood is dripping down to the ground to my roots. The blood seeps and seeps in my roots, killing my seed forever. I weep and weep. The bodies, this strange fruit, their fluids testament to cruelty. Who are these men hanging from my limbs? Somebody cared for them. Where are their people? The bloodthirsty crowd surges around me. Their expressions are demonic. Their laughter is cruel. There are three murders today, two black black bodies and me, the tree. I was just living and minding my business in the southern breeze. And what happens to me after the black bodies are taken down and the beasts not satisfied with the murder? set out to methodically mutilate and carve up the bodies. Like maniacs, they shrill. Here's a black ear. Give me that ear, and I'm going to cut his thing off so he can never again violate a white woman. Here, fling it out and let the dogs eat it. I witnessed this. I am a tree. I was a beautiful 
living tree. Now I am a witness. I bear witness. I am a tree. Strange fruit hanging from my limbs. Oh, thank you very much. Okay. Thank you very much. Yeah. And I can imagine, uh, I want to remind our listeners that that uh, version that we were playing or is playing now is from uh, Renee Marie. Yes. That's her version of Strange Fruit. Yeah. yeah, that's her version of Strange Fruit. Most people are probably familiar with uh, Billie Holiday. I want to thank you very much for that. Well, you know, notice that it starts out, well, I wish I was in Dixie. So that's just a great counterpoint, a juxtaposition. Because that Dixie thing, yes. you know, pastoral scenes. I'm a southerner from the south myself, so I know how beautiful that can be. But then you have that juxtaposed, that beautiful scene with the scene of the black bodies swinging from the poplar tree. In the southern breeze. In the southern yeah. breeze, yeah. Very much so. So, so I'm, uh, when I'm performing this, uh, wherever I'm performing it, if people would uh, check my Facebook page. I probably will have it there, I hope to. So uh, okay. they come if you're in the and area wherever, you could come uh, to see the performance. Uh, and what's your Facebook page under? What name is that under? Sophia Bandelli. Okay. And could you spell that, uh, your names Sophia, for our Sophia. listeners? Sophia, S-A-F-I-Y-A, last name Bandelli, B is in Betty, a N D E L E. Okay, great. Now you said you have some uh, engagements coming up. Uh, Actually, um, yes, uh, for Women's History Month, um, negotiating with schools or colleges for the performance. So the first one is in Utica, New York, March 11th. Utica is way upstate. When they called me, it was 14 degrees below zero. Ooh. I know. <laughs> That's March 11th. Utica. The Brooklyn one is March 25th, actually, Palm Sunday, March 25th, in Brooklyn. Uh-huh, in Brooklyn? Yeah, it's a okay. theater. It's a dinner and theater dinner. It's going to be by uh, the organization Brothers Brothers Who Cook. So you have a nice dinner from Brothers Who Cook, and then my Ida B. Wells performance on Palm Sunday in Brooklyn, New York. Okay. My grandson lives in Brooklyn. I'll have to see oh, yes. he gets out to that. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, Yurka up north there, that was a hot bear for the uh, Underground Railroad. Yes, it was, all along. It's and a uh, lot of uh, abolitionist movements up in that area. That's right. That's right. In, in uh, Utica, New York. And I you said March talk... 25th in Brooklyn. Right, right. Okay. Uh, Preston, I wanted to talk a bit about um, some of the, um, um, what Ida B. Wells had gone through. And, and this okay. is why it's, it's really important when you study um, study history and study what women did and who writes about them. Um, what makes it so particular for uh, black women is the um, the whole sexual aspect of it. And so a lot of, in her autobiography, she talks. She had to fight so much because um, she was young and pretty, and that um, she was called, as you say, all, all kinds of names. So I wrote down some of the um, uh, descriptions of her that were written by other newspapers. Um, okay. They called her that Wells wench, that black harlot seeking a white husband that mistress of the scoundrel who wrote that article, they, um, the notorious Negro courtesan, the half-cultured hater of all things Southern, the saddle-colored sapphire, the strumpet, the infamous slanderer, the intriguing adventurers, and the, all the rumors that she was unchaste, that she was a con artist, and that she besmirched black womanhood. So all of this this racist ideology, you just want to paint her with that brush, and she was always fighting against that and said one reason was because she stayed single for a long time and that a single woman was very, very suspect, uh, particularly a single professional woman, and she was a journalist. But she didn't just want to marry anybody. So when she finally met Ferdinand um Barnett, who was a lawyer, 
who was a widower, and um, they got married. She found she was glad that she waited. And because she was who she was, she brought her, you know, her work to the marriage. And she mm-hmm. never, um, she would, when people would invite her to speak, she said, well, I'll speak, but you have to hire somebody to look after my child while I'm on the podium because my child goes with me, her first, her first son. So it was never any contradiction between, you know, work and home. It was just one way of living her life, you know, being a good wife, yeah. being a good mother, and being an activist and a journalist, you know. And so her husband owned a newspaper in Chicago, and she said uh, one of the conditions of marriage to him was that he handed over to her. So she didn't want to take a chance that he wouldn't. And he was he's a loving, you know, he was secure, and he said, yes, baby, I'll hand it over to you. He handed the newspaper over to her, put it in her name, and that's what she wanted. Come on, Ida B. Yes, I'm telling you. And then at one time they were sitting around the dinner table, and the children were getting up in age, and the news had come of some mention, I think, in Arkansas, and so they looked at her and said, uh, you better go pack. And she's like, I know I'm not going. And they said, yeah, go pack. So her family supported her in her work around uh, around this because, you know, we say. Exactly. They understood do, the mission. They understood the mission and they supported her. Yeah. Yeah, supported her. Now, how many children does she have? Four. Mm-hmm. Four? Yes, yes. Do you, have you come in contact with any of her descendants? Uh, someone is. Try to put me in touch with um, one of them. Somebody's in New York, but not yet. But that's, you know, part of my work to do. It's part of my work to do, yeah. I really want to. And they have a, now there's a whole, in Holly Springs, her house has been restored. And um, there's a lot of um, historical information about her in Holly Springs, Mississippi. In Holly Springs, Mississippi. Is it part of the uh, National Federal Historical Marker? I don't think it's that yet. But um, I okay. hope it's moving. I hope it's moving to that status. I hope it's moving to that and status. As, as some of our listeners are uh, vacationing this summer, what other historical sites should they be on the lookout for? Uh, and what, in the south? to Ida B. Mills. Well, in reference to Ida B. Mill, uh, Wells, is well, there any other beside her home? Well, you know, it's so, it's so. Um, I guess heartbreaking, you know, the Ida B. Wells housing projects in Chicago. Like, it's not exactly Mm -hmm. the fact that it was named after her, I think, is just so historic. But when we look at what's happening in the Ida B. Wells project, I mean, it's just heartbreaking. But nevertheless, uh, someone thought it good to name the Chicago housing project after her. So there is an Ida B. Wells project in in, um, in Chicago. And I thought it would just be cool to say, oh, where do you live? Oh, I live in the Ida B. Wells project. So they say that, but... (laughs) Maybe without even knowing, oh, my God, you know, who is that, you know? I've just been informed that uh, her great-grandson, Dan Duster, uh, is a friend of Freedom of, uh, of, of Leslie? Leslie the Gist. Oh, I think she told Leslie that. Gist on Facebook. Oh, cool. And that he has been interviewed um, here on the uh, Gist of Freedom. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, uh, and I wonder, has he written a book? Or you, well, or this you was the, the granddaughter was the one who wrote, who took her notes and wrote the uh, the Crusade for Justice. Okay, that was the granddaughter. But uh-huh. I, wonder if Mr., I think Mr. Duster might have written a book May as have. well. I don't have that uh-huh. in the uh, bibliography of works. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, these two events, uh, Brooklyn, March 25th, uh, Utica, New, uh, New York. Where in Utica? What will that be? Uh, uh, it's Herkimer Community College. Okay, and that is slated for March 11th? Yes. And um, I'm sure you'll be in, in attendance, I believe it's February 16th, at the uh, the uh, premiere of the... Uh, Showing of uh, the uh, documentary "Slavery by Another Name." Yes, Leslie. I told Leslie I had a, a prior commitment at the Schomburg. Um, oh, I see. It. Well, yeah, and I hope I, you know, I hope to see it uh, the next time. I want to uh, remind our listeners that that will be at uh, February the sixteenth at the Malcolm X and Betty Shabazz Memorial and Education Center. 
3940 Broadway, New York City. That's between 165th and 66th Street. Um, your host will be Ilyasa Shabazz, oh, uh, the cool. daughter of uh, Malcolm and Betty Shabazz. Cool. And I think I finally got that name right. Ilyasa, yes. Uh, Ilyasa. My favorite daughter, uh, my favorite Betty daughter. In fact, um, I just picked up her book today, Growing Up X. Growing Up X, yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, my daughter has read that book, and it was the first book she said she ever read and did not put down. Oh, cool. <laughs> read it from cover right. to cover on first right. reading. Right. Could not let it go. Right. Um, and I would also remind our listeners that uh, this coming Thursday, 8 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, here on the Gist of Freedom. We will again be involved with the book, the reading of the book, Black Abolitionist. Um, And also we'll have a panel and discussion. That book is by Benjamin Quarles. And uh, we will also have a guest by the name of Chet Y. That's W-H-Y-E. We'll also be joining us and um, he is uh, formerly with the Harlem for Obama campaign director and um, let me check on that I think he'll be the guest at the um, at the uh, slavery by another name um Professor, do you have any closing remarks? Yes, um, I wanted to just in terms of um, how she analyzed the whole Lynch thing, the, the brilliance of it, and there were just some points I wanted to make about her analysis, okay? Uh, first oh, is that, by all means. First is that uh, in her brilliant analysis of lynching, Ida Wells exposed the mythical nature of the cry of rape stripping away the most compelling justification of lynching. In fact, she just exposed that uh, in her uh, listings of, uh, in her investigations, found that so often it was uh, white women who were with this, the black man by, but because they wanted to, and then when they were caught, they cried rape or different things happened. Um, she questioned the manliness of those who would basically exploit true manhood's desire to protect womanhood to justify a barbaric practice. And that was that, you know, this barbaric practice was supposed to protect womanhood. She said that, that kind of reasoning was, like, really uh, questionable. And she described lynching as a savage act of uncontrolled fury or as a throwback to outdated notions of manliness. And she contrasted the restraint shown by African Americans with the excess of lynch mobs. And she warned of the destructive force of mob law on civilization and democracy. Because most of the historians seldom wrote about the sexual connection with the, with the, with the lynch thing. You might hear that you don't, no one did an analysis, so it took this Ida Wells to really do the analysis. Now, when mm-hmm. I do the performance, I have like a listing of like a thousand names of victims of lynch, of uh, people who were lynched, and uh, ask people to take a name and just um, stand up and, and say the name. For example, Theodore Pickett, Lynch, Jackson, Mississippi, July 6, 1895. John Thomas, Lynched, Midville, Georgia, November 10, 1889. So I have a thousand names and that and during the performance to give out some of the names and have people stand and say, you know, call the name. We don't know if it's how his people were. All we know is that, according to the historical record, his name was Thomas Midgeville. He was 29. He was lynched on that date. And that, as we say, when you call names and people remember, those thousands of people who were lynched in that period, we want to remember them. We want to remember them. Yeah. um, One last question for you, Professor. How do you feel about the transition from the noose to the gun barrel violence? And uh, particularly with all these gang murders going on in today in our urban areas, yeah, yeah, it's 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 a tra- it's a tragedy of a different stripe, so to speak, but it is a tragedy. And the Ida B. Wells Project in Chicago, and Chicago had the 
500 murders in the last at the last count. You know, mm-hmm. so you look at that kind of those kind of homicide homicide things, and then you look at the lynching that were more uh, more in that than than were lynched in a certain period. It really is. It really is heartbreaking, and it really is, I think, about the proliferation of weapons. Part of it is the proliferation of weapons and the easy access to weapons. Uh, yes, thank you uh, very much for joining us. Well, thank you. I appreciated um, the opportunity to talk about one of my favorite people. Thank you. Oh, I can tell she's one of your favorites because oh, she's just one love of mine her. I now. just love her. I just love her, right? Yes. I get excited, right? <laughs> Uh, you've been listening to the Gist of Freedom uh, show in reference to Ida B. Wells, a warrior for justice. Our guest has been Safiya Bandelli. My name is Preston Washington. I've been your host. Uh, what I'm doing here in Kansas City, uh, Benjamin Pap Singleton has now been established uh, as having died and buried here in Kansas City. So my organization is in the process of uh, arranging to get a memorial uh, in the cemetery that he's buried in. We haven't found a marker yet. For those who don't know, Benjamin Pap Singleton was known as the Black Moses. He was very instrumental after slavery, after the emancipation of the black exodus from the south to the state of Kansas. And... Uh, our producer has been Leslie Gist, author and historian and black historian extraordinaire, I might add. Um, and we want to thank her for her diligent work and um, bringing this history to us day in and day out, not just one month a year. And uh, I want to say good night and good night, everybody. Good night, Professor. Good night, and thank you so much, Brother, for hosting. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye now.